Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today in the podcast, I'm very pumped about the guest. It's Adisu Demisi. Now, you may not know the name, but he is the perfect guest for the perfect time to talk about what we're going to talk about right now. He's going to be talking about the California primary, which is on March 3rd. He's going to be talking about the national race. And what does it matter that Bernie Sanders is leading the race? And that people are kind of freaked out because he's a democratic socialist. Does that matter? Adisa will take on all these things. They're all in his wheelhouse and he knocks it out of the park. And now here's my conversation with Adisa. Adisa Demisi, welcome to San Francisco. My fellow Oaklander, you are the perfect guest at the perfect time <laughs> right now. Uh, just for, uh, for the guests who don't know him, you not only ran Gavin Newsom's, uh, gubernatorial campaign, a winning campaign in 2018. You were on the Hillary team in 2016, and you ran Cory Booker's presidential campaign here in 2019, 2020. Welcome. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's good to be here and it's good to be home. Uh, no, no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. Okay. Let's, let's talk the, the news of the day that's freaking everyone out. It's certainly the Democratic <laughs> establishment. Bernie Sanders is the front runner. Can he win the nomination? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He can. Uh, I not only can he. I think he's he's the odds-on favorite at this point. Um, I think the the results in Nevada on Saturday to me it, are a bit of a harbinger of things to come. He won about a third of the vote, the raw vote, but almost half of the delegates uh, uh, and uh, almost half of the state delegates and almost two thirds of the. Um, or exactly two-thirds of the national delegates. And I think as long as the field stays as it is, that could be uh, a result we see a lot, including here in California, uh, next Tuesday. And he, uh, can he beat President Trump? Yes, I think he can. How? I think, Go ahead. I think all of, I think every candidate still, I think any candidate who ran could. I think the big, you know, the thing that people aren't seeing necessarily is it changes the map. It may be a, and it changes who the swing voters are. It may look a little different than what we are, are used to. But uh, I remember the same things people said about President Obama twelve years ago, and he won Indiana, <laughs> uh, and North Carolina, and other states that we didn't even think at this point twelve years ago were in play. And so it will be, a, it, you know, if he is the nominee, it would be a very unusual map and unusual race. I think. How would, how would, it, how would uh, the map change? How would it look different? Um, I don't know. I think I think Florida is the state that I'd be most most worried about. It's a traditional swing state. It's got a ton of electoral votes. I think third most in the country, but or fourth most in the country. But um, I I think it would be very tough for him to win Florida. But maybe mm -hmm. he puts other states in the Midwest, like Ohio, back on the map for uh, in a way that um, uh, it wouldn't be for other candidates. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I haven't seen the polling to be honest. And right. a lot of things change over the course of a campaign, but. Um, uh, that's the one that comes to mind immediately. All right, let's how about the socialism thing? Uh, today, uh, or over the weekend, I should say, uh, he, well, first of all, clarify that Senator Sanders says he is a self-described democratic socialist. Um, over the weekend, uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn, who's the number three person in the House, influential figure in South Carolina politics, and they, of course, uh, will have their uh, primary on Saturday after we record this. He said, I do not believe I do believe it will be an extra burden for us to have to carry being a socialist. 
This is South Carolina, and South Carolinians are pretty leery about that title, socialist. And so I think that that would be a real burden for us in these states or congressional districts that we have to do well in. If you look at how well we did the last time and look at the congressional districts, these were not liberal or what you might call progressive districts. These were basically moderate and conservative districts that we did well in. And in those districts, it's going to be tough to hold on to those jobs if you have to make the case for a for accepting a self-proclaimed democratic socialist. In other words, he's worried about losing the House. What would a Bernie on the top of the ticket mean for the House uh, and the Senate? Yeah, I think that's the chief argument against him at this point. I think he can beat President Trump. I think it could have effects like you know, Leader Clyburn talks about down ballot in the Senate. Uh, you know, we were just talking about the states that may or may not be on uh, in play if Sanders is the nominee. One of those, I think, is North Carolina, um, which has maybe our number one, if certainly top three pickup opportunity for Democrats in the Senate. Um, so in the Senate, in the House, as he talks about. So, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, that is the argument, the political argument, at least against a Sanders um, uh, nomination. It's not actually, to me at least, as much about beating Donald Trump. It's about what is the down ballot effect and what is the collateral effects of having somebody with his ideology and um, and so forth at the top of the ticket. So so it would affect the top of the ticket or it would affect the down ticket. You I, think? I think so. Yeah. yeah. If I, you know, my, my gut says yes. I think there will be a lot of Democrats, state house, state, uh, to Senate um, who, are, who are on the ticket with him that would distance themselves from his ideology or some of his positions. Th to be fair, that would be true of any candidate, right? There will be folks on the left who disagree with a candidate who would come from the center. Um, but I think the, the biggest challenge with the Sanders, a, a Sanders nomination will be how does the party come together uh, and how does it work top to bottom, president to you know mayor, city council um, in a coordinated campaign um, and that it could be a challenge. So in the day-to-day, -day, some of these candidates are worried, like, they would have to answer a question like, what well, do you support a socialist? Uh, do you support Medicare for all? They would, they would feel that they would be boxed into a corner if Bernie Sanders was on the top of the ticket. Is that I, yeah, fair I think I, Absolutely. I think, you know, <clears throat> presidential elections are different from midterm elections. Last year, or I guess now 2018, we were, you know, you were essentially running hundreds of small individual campaigns in Orange County where we took over all of the congressional districts down there or whatever state Senate race might be out there. Without question, the, the presidential race is going to dominate the airwaves. It's going to dominate the um, conversation over the course of the next eight months. And so um, if you are a down ballot candidate, you cannot you you cannot help but be affected by what happens yeah. above you on that ticket. And so I do think that if you are a congressional candidate who is in a truly ideological moderate district or, or a, a lean Republican district, um, having somebody that far to the left is going to be a challenge you have to navigate, well, no in, doubt about it. In California, would that be a Josh Harder who flipped the district in the Central Valley? Would that be a TJ Cox yes. who flipped the district? Would those guys have to – they might be concerned. I, I think so. I think you know those Orange County districts are a little different because it's more suburban, educated, I think, um, uh, and less conservative, I think. Uh, in the sort of maybe a Harley, new a, Har Republican, a Harley Ruta, maybe be, a Harley Ruta, right? He's yeah, living those, in, he's the, those Katie Porter type districts are highly educated, pretty liberal, I would say, um, uh, new Democrats, mm. as opposed to you have, you know, a pretty conservative in the Central Valley uh, with Harder and, and Cox. And so 
I think there are a lot of districts that we picked up in 2018 where if you're a Harder or a Cox or their equivalents across the country, you're going to basically want to run a race that is completely divorced from the top of the ticket. It can be done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happened in 2018, in 2016, I'm sorry, with Trump that he was in a similar position at the top of the ticket right. and people still managed to win down ballot. Um, the one difference I will say about that very quickly is a lot of the states, in particular on the Senate, that we that um, Republicans held in 2016 were red states that they were holding. Mm-hmm. We are actually trying to pick up uh, seats in red and purple states, which makes it a little bit different. But um, yeah, it's going to be if, – if this is what happens, I think it's going to be – the internal Democratic Party politics to me are the thing that's the most interesting and the most challenging. What is uh, – you are uh, – you're someone who bridges all parts of the party. You, <laughs> you, you, are, you know the, uh, the establishment, the, those at the highest, the top of the, uh, the party. How freaked are how freaked out are people right now? Um, In the level of freak out from one to ten, where are we? On the- <laughs> I think I think there is a divide. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I would say it's <laughs> over five. Let's say amongst people who are anti Sanders, it's getting closer to ten by the day. I think there is a division though between people who uh, are worried about Sanders' ability to beat Trump, which mm-hmm. I think is again, I don't think anybody is an overwhelming favorite. No. I think people are people are a little too. Um, uh, sure of themselves when they, when they say that he's definitely going to lose, but that's where my that's where I land. So yeah, there is yeah. a, there is one um, segment of the party that I think is all about Sanders' ability to beat Trump, and and we should all we should be we should all be scared about who is going to be right. able to beat Trump. I think there's the other part of the party, the one that I subscribe to, that is more worried about what does it mean for the party, what does it mean for the down ballot, et cetera, et cetera. And those freakouts are happening sort of in parallel. <laughs> uh, uh, parallel and freak so, outs. you know, they're coming together and maybe multiplying uh, as opposed to adding. But it is, it is, um, you know, this is what the party, it, the party is going to decide, the voters of the party are going to decide. 2% of them have voted so far. We still have 98% to go. Yeah. A lot can happen, though. I think, as you asked me up front, I think we are likely headed towards a Sanders um, plurality of the delegates. And if it's a big enough plurality, I think he'll end up being the nominee. Um, what, what candidate has the is the best uh, chance to be an alternative to Bernie Sanders at this point of the, of the remaining candidates? <laughs> that is a excellent question. Um, I think I don't. I I mean I really I really I think any of them could actually beat. Yeah, that's actually overstating it. I think I think probably Joe Biden at this point mm-hmm. of the candidates that are that are remaining. Um, you know, I think, but that can change depending on the results on Saturday. Yeah, <laughs> uh, South I, Carolina. Know, oh, if, he, if, he, if it's a narrow victory, or if he were to, if not, he were win, to not win, exactly. Then game so over. it's yeah. a it's very much a moving target. The reason why I say Biden is this: universal name recognition is is extremely valuable at this point in the race when we turn to March, and universal likability. And Joe Biden, while he's taken a bit of a hit in terms of his favorability over the course of the last few weeks, is still amongst the Democratic primary electorate, basically universally known and universally liked. Mm. And we're about to go into a three-week stretch where um, you know, more than half of the Democratic primary electorate is going to weigh in, and you can't manufacture that over the course of these three weeks. You have to already have it. And, and, you, so, and you can't manufacture uh, boots on the ground. You can't manufacture campaign operations in 14 you can't, states. Yeah. Like the, the Buttigieg's and, and, uh, Although, and Klobuchar's uh, of the world haven't. Yeah. Haven't Buttigieg has actually, I mean, Warren for sure too has a, yeah. ha, and she's actually the one, the other one that I would say in an odd way would be um, at this point strongest against um, uh, against Bernie because she has actually manufactured that. That's mm-hmm. where she's been spending all this money for the last year. And 
you can't, you know, you can't buy time, right? Has meant, uh, spent money on what? On on building that organization. You know, mm-hmm. she has staff on the ground in Texas and in uh, Missouri, which comes up on March 10th, and in the, you know, Massachusetts, her home state, and Super Tuesday. So, so she spent a lot of money and time doing that in 2019, and is hoping it pays off here in March. Mm-hmm. Um, but Biden, between Biden and Warren, for different reasons, I think they have they they could be strong. Mm-hmm. I think Bloomberg is the other one, obviously. He's already spent half a billion dollars. He could spend half a billion dollars more uh, in March alone if he felt like it. And money talks and can buy you um, name rec- the things that I talked about before, favorability, name recognition, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion for Bernie yet. But the problem is as long as there are three, four or five options, I didn't talk about Pete and Amy, but they're still in the race. You're going to have those people splinter and uh, or people who support them splinter who don't support Bernie splinter amongst them. And Bernie just has his hardcore quarter to a third of the people. And it's probably enough to win. What, uh, what is the, you mentioned Bloomberg. How has he reshaped the race since being in here? <clears throat> yeah, of course he had the dreadful debate performance the other night. How has he reshaped the race? And, and can he, can he, can he win? I think, yes, he can win. Uh, I think, yes, he can beat Trump as well. I think the challenge for Bloomberg is, is the one I talked about before. He's trying to buy what Joe Biden had, mm. <laughs> which is na- name recognition and favorability. And he, in Super Tuesday states in particular, and, you know, half a billion dollars is a lot of money. Um, Unbelievable. But... Uh, For perspective, more than o- what Obama spent in 2012, correct? Oh, yeah. In his entire uh, uh, re-election campaign. And more on, at least on television, mm-hmm. by orders of magnitude yeah. of what Obama all the other candidates like three... have done combined or what Obama did oh, yeah. in 08 and 12. And so... I think the answer is yes, but the only way he does it is by sheer force of resources. He has $60 billion, so that that's a lot of resources he could in theory throw at it. But yeah, he can win. Uh, he will not be able to win if he is not the last candidate standing against Bernie. Um, but I also feel that way about Biden. I feel that way about Warren. And that's the prisoner's dilemma, game theory situation that we find ourselves in now, which is um, I think anybody could beat Bernie one-on-one. But we're not going to get to a one-on-one <laughs> in time for it to for wow. it for and us to ever. And play in out time would be of, before Super Tuesday. It would be by next like, Tuesday. Yeah, and, uh, that's not going to happen. And so that's it's a it's a true uh, collective action problem that is going to lead to uh, uh, an outcome that probably all the other candidates don't want. But that's politics. Yeah, nobody wants to get out. Um, let's okay. So let's say this goes to the convention. Bernie does not uh, scenario kind of alluded to. He has a plurality, but he does not have enough to clinch the nomination. Then we go to the second ballot. Before we get to that point, is there someone in the party who has the respect and power to be a true broker here? And the two names that come to mind are Pelosi and Barack Obama. Um, I'm dubious about Pelosi because I don't know how far her power extends beyond Washington. And... I'm dubious about the president because I don't think he wants to get his hands dirty. <laughs> I don't know. What's your take on I, you're, you? You're closer to both these people nope, than I am. I think the other name you might want to add to that, I read this morning in an article I think is right, is is Senator Schumer, who mm-hmm. who does – I think Pelosi and Schumer both have the interests of their members mm-hmm. and those down-ballot races at top of mind. And so what they say will essentially – would essentially represent the um, – their caucus and sort of the the political interests of their caucus. But I think the the real answer is is Barack Obama and nobody Mm. else. And uh, I think his – first of all, I don't think he will do it. Um, Then why not? Why don't you think he would do it? 
ultimately, he wants the voters to make the decision. I think his responsibility is to bring the party back together once the voters have made their decision, not mm. to put his finger on the scale. Mm. Um, uh, one either for Bernie or against Bernie or for one of these other candidates before voters mm -hmm. have weighed in. That's traditionally what former presidents do, and I think it's the right thing to do. He can go there in July in Milwaukee and stand on the stage and give a forceful endorsement of whoever the nominee ends up being. And that moment will be an enormously important, maybe the most important moment in a lot of ways for our party uh, between now and November, because he's the only one who can bring us back together. So uh, that's, that's his role is they bring, you know, after the, if, if indeed Sanders is a nominee and there's a lot going to be or a lot somebody of else or somebody else is yeah. the nominee. Yeah. Then he brings everybody back that's, together. I think that speech that he gives at the convention is going to be a critical, critical moment. Uh, to our ability to come together and, and ultimately beat Donald Trump. And what are your concerns is if the nominee is not Sanders and then uh, he has a lot of, uh, of, of supporters who are going to be, they're going to be pissed off. They're going to be like, oh my, this, this is the system is rigged again. Here we come in here with the uh, more delegates than anybody else and we're, and we're hosed. What, what, what happens then? Uh, it's, uh, it's a very good question. I think that then it's up to Senator Sanders um, and what he does. Um, Again, I think it's unlikely that somebody with a plurality of delegates gets denied the nomination unless – and this is my personal opinion. It's a political opinion, not a rule – that unless the margin is so close between the top two people that there's a plausible argument and there's sort of momentum at the end for the second person, um, there's a plausible argument to say – you know, this person was strong in February and March. I'm strong here in May and June. I'm close. Uh, we shouldn't just ratify results from six months ago or five months ago. Um, outside of that eventuality, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's likely that 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 whoever comes in second is going to end up as the nominee. But if they do, it's up to Bernie. And it was up to Bernie in 2016. And I don't think, to be frank, that he did a good enough job of it. Um, uh, you know, Sanders folks and Sanders himself, himself would disagree. But it is, you know, if you look back to what happened in this party in 2008, Hillary Clinton had a much stronger argument for, you know, really uh, digging in her heels, fighting to the convention uh, uh, and tearing the party apart. And she did literally everything she could to uh, bring the party together uh, before the convention and after. I don't think he did the made the same effort in 16. All of our non-nominees are going to have to do that here in 2020 because the threat of, of another Trump term is just too high. And we'll be back for more of my conversation with Adisu Demisi after this short break. All right, let's talk California. Uh, Californians are already voting. As, as, we're, as we're recording this, it's one of the uh, 14 states casting ballots on March 3rd. You have run a statewide campaign here, albeit for governor, but you, you know you know all parts of the state. Why, explain what, what is unusual about, about California. And, you know, I'm uh, doing a story about uh, candidates hosting, uh, Buttigieg was over in Turlock the other day. <laughs> like Buttigieg and Turlock, what the hell? So um, why, <clears throat> why is he there? And talk about... Uh, you know, every you have to get fifteen percent of the votes in a congressional district to even qualify for delegates. So that's explain. yeah, that's why he was there, <laughs> um, uh, and that's why you'll see. I think in the next week, strategies. You know, where the candidates go and where they advertise, obviously as well, is a just a red light signal about what um, 
what they're trying to do here. But ultimately, you know, California is a media state. You know, you can't. I think Sanders announced that he knocked a million doors in this state, which is a very impressive thing to do. It's also a drop in the bucket <laughs> uh, compared <laughs> to what you could do. I mean, a million dollars is a lot of doors, but compared yeah. to the number of voters, number of doors, yeah. number of people who are going to be. Um, but roughly $2 million a week if you want to advertise on TV statewide. I mean, that's. That's probably low. low. Yeah. yeah, I would say three to four. Three to four. Okay. Um, to do something sort of credible. Yeah. Um, and nobody's doing that except for Bloomberg. But ultimately, what these candidates want to do is they want to get to fifteen percent in as many districts as they can, and I think most importantly to get to it statewide, um, because not only are the delegates allocated by district, they're also delegated. That large ones are allocated. Um, by your statewide performance. And so there is a world, I think is a very likely world that Sanders and maybe only one other candidate hit that 15% statewide. Mm. Um, and a bunch of candidates get 14, 13, 12 and getting 13 is functionally getting zero um, oh, in yeah. a congressional district or in a state because in a, a statewide, because you're just not going to get any delegates. And so that is the dream scenario for Sanders, the nightmare scenario for others, but a very likely scenario. And we just saw it in Nevada. Uh, you know, only Sanders and Biden got to 15 percent statewide. And that's why Sanders got so many delegates, despite only getting 34 uh, percent of the of the raw vote when they when folks showed up at the caucus. So you're playing a very different game on, on March 3rd here in California than you've been playing over the course of so February. So what do you do if you're not a Sanders <clears throat> who's been here? Let's let's give them credit. They, these guys have been here since last May. They've been organizing on the ground. Phenomenal job organizing, organizing in the Latino communities. Um, what what do you do if you're not one of those guys? What do you how do you organize here? What what's your strategy to can you can you do like a rural strategy? Say yeah. I'm gonna pick off the the Turlocks and yes. the, it's too and late the to Modocs of the world. It's too late to do it on the ground. You needed mm -hmm. to be investing, and this is where I was talking about Warren before, mm -hmm. you needed to be investing in 2019 to be able mm -hmm. to pull that off. Sanders did. Has anyone else? Bloomberg has people on the ground. Um, it's still not enough, in this state at least. It's, yeah. it's impressive, but it's not enough. Um, but I would say Sanders and Bloomberg are the only folks who have enough people in the state to do anything. Right. It's really a media game. It's about can you afford not just television, but digital, direct mail, you name it, radio to um, to persuade enough people in those districts where you might be close to 15 to put you over 15. And so my gut is if you're Buttigieg or Klobuchar or Biden, for that matter, you are polling by the congressional district, if you, if you can afford it, certainly by the state and, try, and by media market and trying to see where you might be plus or minus a couple points near 15. And then you're throwing your money there to try to to try to get you over that 15 percent threshold. And if it's just you and Sanders in some of these places, you're going to get a lot of delegates for 15 or 16 percent. And uh, but again, nobody other than uh, um, uh, Sanders and Bloomberg have you know ground operations here. And, Warren, and, but not uh, Warren does, but it's more political than ground. Right? Okay. It's more outreach. I think it really is Sanders and Bloomberg, okay. pretty much uh, one two. All right. You tweeted the other day. Oh, gosh. Oh, my God. Call well, me this, out. this is uh oh. <laughs> uh, just want to remind everyone that California won't be close to finishing <laughs> the count or allocating delegates until several days, in parentheses, at least past Super Tuesday. So prepare to be very angry on here. <laughs> Yeah, a little bit of a joke is people on, people on no, Twitter. No, that's not a, that's for I real. I mean, it's man. the truth. It's, it's the truth. Yeah. But. 
you know, all these things we're talking about with 15 percent thresholds and and statewide and in congressional districts and total number of ballots. We're not going to know the real numbers in California probably until April, um, certainly until the end of March. And people have been freaking out about the Iowa and Nevada, how long it takes, right. blah, blah. And I'm just like, calm down. Like, I, I get the people hate caucuses and I get it. And I think we're going to have a real conversation in the party about whether caucuses are are um, right for picking presidential primary what, what do you delegates. Think? I have a soft spot for them, but I think as long as we're going to require – we've basically turned them into primaries with these new rules of reporting out these three numbers, et cetera. So um, I think this is probably the end of caucuses to be honest. But you know, let, let's just calm down everybody. Like it, I would rather people get it right than get it fast. Mm -hmm. I know we want to be able to do our snap analysis and what have you. But like I even remember from 16, Hillary was way ahead on – on election night in California. And by the time all the provisionals and late coming absentees here in California came, got counted, the gap closed by like, I don't know, I think it was like eight points. I mean, really significant changes. So I just, I just was trying to with my little Twitter following, pour some water on the idea <laughs> that like, it's okay for us to wait. No, it's it's actually, okay. Even in the governor's race of 2018, uh, I mean, your, your race was a blowout, but uh, there were congressional races decided three weeks three after. Weeks later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So and in our race, I was fighting for 60. We got there. Uh, <laughs> 60%. But uh, yeah, you know, that was like my internal. I was, I wanted, <laughs> whoa, I wanted Gavin to win by the uh, biggest margin ever. And we didn't get to 60 until like a week later. And I was, I was refreshing just like everybody else. Maybe it's a little cocky, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's going to take a week. It's going to take two weeks. It, that's what it's going to be. Um, we just have to deal with it. People have to be okay with it. Um, all right. Let's go back and talk to, about uh, Corey's campaign for a little bit. One, this is something that people ask me all the time, and I get in conversations about this. Why didn't Cory Booker catch on? He is a senator. He's a mayor of a small city. Smart. Rhodes Scholar. Stanford. Yale Law, Law School. Progress, progressive uh, viewpoints. Unbelievable speaker. The, the man sweats through his shirt. <laughs> he burns down the building when he, when he speaks. Uh, what happened? Why didn't he catch on? Um, you've had a week in Hawaii to think I, about this. I know I've had now a month or so to, to marinate on it. I think a couple things. One is I think that just the pure politics tactics of it, we were blocked in a lot of ways by a lot of other candidates in terms of, uh, media attention, polling, you name it. And when you say the, blocked, what do you mean? Sort of, we were the second choice of a lot of people, mm -hmm. uh, given the huge number of people in the race. We were second choice of a lot of people, mm. but not the first choice of enough. I think that would have changed if we had made it to February and March. But that brings me to the second thing, which is um, the, the the debate qualifying thresholds really hurt. And it's I don't think it's a, an accident that the only candidates that are left are the ones who are on the debate stage in December and January. Um, you know, it became a... Um, indicator of viability to the world, mm -hmm. including the press. Mm -hmm. And I would say for the last three months of the campaign, certainly the last two months of the campaign, the first question we got in any political interview or from any endorser who we were seeking or whatever is, are you going to make the debate stage? And does that indicate the viability of your campaign? And so we, be, we got into this sort of spiral about all of that. I think the other piece of it was impeachment uh, from the moment mm. on September, I believe it was September 24th, if I remember the day exactly, that uh, that Nancy Pelosi did her press conference, impeachment became the dominant story. Mm. Um, nationally, we couldn't get, we could, it was very hard to punch a message through at a critical moment for us when we needed to be surging in the polls. 
um, uh, to get on the debate stages, et cetera. So uh, it was a combination of a lot of factors, may not have been his time. Our message, you know, uh, may not have resonated at this moment in, in American history. But Corey said to me way back at the beginning that his goal of this was to bring people to him, not to change who he was just to win a nomination. And, um, you know, we brought a lot of people along. We increased his name recognition, his his um, favorability, but it just wasn't his moment. What does it mean that uh, these people are no longer in the race? Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro. How much is this is about race? And how much of this is about uh, that they didn't make the debate stage? I think a significant amount is about race. Um, and here's why. Uh, Isaac Dover from The Atlantic wrote a piece before we got out sometime in December, I think it was, about sort of the second order racism. Um, it's really it, what it really comes down to is about electability. I don't think Democratic primary voters are primarily or even close to racist or thinking about, um, uh, you know, not willing to vote for a candidate because of their race. In fact, we saw that <laughs> 12 years ago and eight years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think because of the importance of beating Donald Trump and the sort of obsession with electability that we've had, people are looking not at what they would do, but what they think the theoretical swing voter would do. Mm. And I think if you are a woman or a person of color, um, you look at you, you, it is harder to make the case that you are electable against Donald Trump because I think your average Democratic primary voter thinks Trump was a reaction to the first black president and he beat the first female nominee. And so I don't think it's a surprise that we are coming down to what looks like three, maybe four white guys as our last four choices. That is not an accident. It is. And was that, did, how did that affect the ability to raise money and, 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 and that? It, it, I don't think it affected – well, it affected it in the second order way, which is that people aren't saying they're going to vote for you or people are expressing concerns about you. Can you beat Donald Trump? What do you actually – what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I don't think it was – I don't think it was affecting us sort of directly. It was affecting us indirectly and then all of those – all of the problems that ended up with the exception of impeachment that ended up circling us certainly had something to do with race just as with Senator Harris. It had to do with race and gender. I think Elizabeth Warren right now is without question the recipient of this, which is that I think people see her, unfortunately for her, as sort of uh, Hillary Clinton again, right? Which mm. is just because she's a woman. That's not fair. Um, she is not Hillary Clinton. She's a different candidate with different positions. But Donald Trump beat beat Hillary – I'm putting this in air quotes for people yes. who are listening to this. Donald <laughs> Trump beat Hillary Clinton in 2016. We can't, we can't do that again or else we're going to lose again. It all comes from a fear of losing to Trump and an obsession with electability. And it's, and it's electability, as we've written and we've had the guests on the podcast, that is a myth. It's a myth. Uh, it's, uh, it's proven to be a myth in 20, the last uh, race. The, Barack the, Obama yeah. and Donald Trump are our last two presidents. We probably should tr stop trying to figure out what – American voters are willing to vote for. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. What what should the DNC do to change uh, the the requirements for getting on the debate stage? What would be a better way to do this? Right Oof. now, it's been a, a mixture of uh, you know uh, how many how many su uh, online supporters you have, how many what your polling results are, et cetera, et cetera. Now there's a if you want a delegate. What what should be the requirement to, or the criterion to get on? You will be shocked to know, Joe, that I have thought a lot about this. Uh, I, over I the think last I believe we were on the phone when, when when the debate rules oh, were changed. My God. I I could actually hear your head explode I mean, during the conversation a few months back. I, you know, I I honestly don't know the answer to this yet. 
I will say this to the world. If anybody is listening, I want to be involved. No, I want to be involved. I want to, I'm just saying if anybody with influence over this wants to draw me into the process for figuring it out next time, I would love to be a part of it because I think it is a, I think it was such a crucial part of winnowing the field this time that we got to get it right. The whole primary process, but the debate process specifically, you know, I don't know the answer, but maybe the answer is just getting out of the the process altogether and letting the media organizations do it. That's how it was done in 2012 and and before. Is that so? Let the if, let's say CBS is hosting the debate. They get pick. to pick. Let them pick, um, because the, I think the DNC's rules were born out of a, an obsession with looking neutral, <laughs> and given what happened in 2016, um, and. There is no such thing as neutral. If you pick mm. polling as an as a marker, you are advantaging people with name recognition. Period. If you pick donors as a as a <laughs> criterion, you are advantaging people with online donor bases, which skews white, skews more affluent, et cetera, et cetera. Period. So there's no such thing. And you can you can buy it's and like you can buy, buy your online donors. Explain yeah, how that Tom works. Maybe did it. We, we did it. Hundred thousand dollars. You could buy. You yeah, could buy. How many costs, buys you? How many dollars? It depends, um, but it costs um, anywhere between $10 and $50 to buy a donor um, Mm. who will give you $1. It's literally just a saturation media strategy. You Mm. put enough ads out there, you'll find somebody who's willing to give you money. But for us, we spent more money getting donors than we got raised from those donors. But that's what we had to do to make it on the debate stage to prove that we were viable. So – to me, maybe the, the – the and I haven't decided on this, but maybe it's just get out of the game altogether. Hmm. The The other thing that I've thought about, I've talked to a few other folks in democratic politics about, is having some kind of um, bonus for people who are in elected office. There is a anti-elite sentiment in this country right now, an anti-elected official sentiment generally hmm. speaking. But if you are running for president of the United States, it does suggest to me that your ability to win votes – um, is like is relevant <laughs> to your ability to be the Democratic nominee. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Um, and so, uh, you know, for, I obviously feel some kind of way about about Senator Booker. But if you're Senator Gillibrand <clears throat> or um, Governor Bullock or some of these candidates who got pushed out of the race in September because they couldn't make the debate stage, that's truly ridiculous. Gillibrand is a sen- United States senator yes. from the third biggest state in the country. Like. That's got to be worth something. Um, and so, you know, that could be a criterion. But again, that also has its biases built I, into it. I well. think uh, obviously you're showing your anti-Marianne Williamson bias. <laughs> and anti-Andrew Yang, right? You're, but I love the Andrew Yang and I love and so, The Yang gang um, is going to be up your Yang gang. Well, uh, this is why one. I said let the, <clears throat> let, the, let the media organizations decide how they want to do debates and um, let them take the heat <laughs> for it. The NC can get out of the game. What was uh, just looking back? What, what would you have done different? And what would you have done differently in the campaign? Oh, man, other th- questions that I've thought about a yes. little <laughs> bit since January thirteenth. Um, the biggest thing I think I would do differently. The, the biggest realization I had probably in the summer, certainly in the fall, was just how much of an effect the number of candidates in the field had on our ability to basically do anything. Um, it's what drove the fear of a big, too big debate stage, which drove the debate rules. It's what drove, um, people's indecision, you know, the paradox of choice as people call it, where people get so excited, so excited about so many candidates, they can't pick one. Um, it's what definitely drove media attention. You know, you can't pay attention to 20 candidates. So the press had to 
pick and choose winners in that sense who gets attention. And so I say all that to say when the field was smaller in February, March, April of last year, especially before Biden got in, I probably would have been more media aggressive. Um, and mm. and and that's what Buttigieg did. And I think it was a brilliant strategy. It's why he is still in the race, in my opinion, is he just went while the field was small, yeah. relatively, he went all in on the press strategy mm -hmm. and um, he's good at it, first of all, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it allowed him to capture a share of the market, media market, um, at a time where you could actually do that. It became basically impossible in the summer and then, God forbid, when impeachment started, it was, it was, was it. you know, zero percent chance that you could really break through. And... <clears throat> Uh, what's the uh, Corey's running for re-election? Correct. Yeah, he's up. Yes. In are you are you working on that campaign? Yeah, I'm helping from afar <laughs> as much as I can. Um, uh, Matt Clapper, who was my senior advisor on the campaign, is now his chief of staff back in the in the Senate. <clears throat> he was before as well. So they've got a good operation going, and um, uh, I think he's gonna possible vice president. Does he? <laughs> who knows? I yeah. mean, yeah, I think I think a nominee would be crazy not to consider him. Yeah, um, he is. Broadly liked in the party, broadly liked outside the party yeah. uh, by moderates and progressives alike. Um, yeah, he African American, multiple, multiple political languages. Yeah, yes. and and you know, African American, which I think is very important mm -hmm. to our our prospects in November. Ready to be president, probably most important of all. So yeah, I think folks would be crazy not to consider him. But I also think that that's not he's not angling for it per se. He's mm -hmm. much more interested in. And being the United States Senator from New Jersey for six one more. Do you think that that if there is a uh, or that looks like there will be a um, a white uh, nominee, what are your concerns about reassembling the Obama coalition uh, and and just bringing uh, people of color into the process? Well, is this alienating the whole you know debate so white and 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 candidate field so white? Is that uh, are you concerned about that? I am concerned about it. I think it's very important that we have black, brown, Asian, native voters centered in our nominees' politics and in their campaigns. Um, I don't think that necessitates having a person of color at the top of the ticket or on the ticket even. But um, if you're not going to do that in your campaign, you, you're you going to lose. <laughs> right. So if you're not right. going to center it in your campaign, you're going to lose or you're not going to motivate people enough. So um, – I do think that it sent a bad signal to – it does send a bad signal, particularly to the activist class of the Democratic Party, that we have – we don't have any people of color sort of in the race anymore, even though the race is kind of just beginning. Um, but it's something that can be rectified with a good campaign um, and um, with a good vice presidential choice, with a you know good program and a candidate who is – uh, willing to do the outreach as as uh, previous candidates have been willing to do. I'll say this: who the the Obama coalition though is not. I think that's not. I, I don't actually care if we reassemble the Obama coalition. I want to assemble the fifty plus one coalition of mm. of <laughs> electoral college votes and whatever that looks like. And I think it may be a totally different coalition for a Bernie Sanders than it mm. is for a Joe Biden than it is for a Bloomberg. But I think we should get out of our heads that that we have to redo what Barack Obama did. Mm. We just got to get to 270 electoral votes. Mm. And, um, but to your question, I don't think there's any path without voters of color, period. Yeah. Um, and so I just hope that our candidate and our um, our nominee, you know, centers that in their campaign. All right. Adisa, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. All right. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Adisu 
my fellow Oaklander for coming across the bridge to be on the podcast today in San Francisco. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, and the great one, Karen Creighton, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you think you can predict who people will vote for, or if you're a sane person, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.